Good morning, church. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you can you can put your finger in two places. Deuteronomy chapter six. Um, but before we go to Deuteronomy six, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick stop where Rob left off last week in Ecclesiastes twelve. Verse 13. But before we jump into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who loves and cares for us. We thank you that you are merciful, withholding uh, your just justice from each and every one of us that truly deserve it. We thank you that you are gracious, pouring out your Son so that we might that we might be yours. We pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that our hearts would be inclined towards you to hear what your word has to teach us. It's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to I maybe give a little... I don't know of my my brain context context to get you to know why we're going to be looking at the passage that we're going to be looking at predominantly looking at today, which is Deuteronomy six, verses four to nine. Last week Rob preached, and and, and I've I've said this to Rob, and, and now I'll say it to you. I've I found that I I greatly appreciate the simple fact that there are a number of of men in this church who can who can fill in for me to the point where I don't have to. Uh, worry uh, in, in any sense that the Word of God will continue to be preached. Uh, and when I go on vacation and, and things of that nature, I can, I can rest, which is much needed at times. And so last week, Rob, is he's preaching out of, out of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And Ecclesiastes was the first book that I read from start to finish as a Christian. And, and for many of you who have read through the Bible and, and have read Ecclesiastes, you might go, why on earth would that be the first book that you read? Well, I don't really know, but it has been very formative. It was very formative in my, in my life, in my walk with Christ. And it's just one of, those, one of those books that just fascinates me. Some people like Psalms. Some people like Proverbs. I like Ecclesiastes in, in the wisdom literature. And Rob mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again. If you take out verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't make it into the Bible. Because in a lot of ways, it doesn't make any sense without verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is what is known as anti-wisdom. 
meaning it's coming at wisdom from the opposite perspective. It's saying what is what is not wise. What is not wisdom? You go through the book of Proverbs and you see what is wisdom. These are the things that we do. The, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he's saying, this is what you shouldn't do. I've done it to kind of prove to you that it doesn't really, it's not really a blessing as some of these other things that we see in Proverbs and, and even in Psalms and in Psalms Psalm are. But one of the things that I struggle with as a, as a preacher is whenever somebody else is preaching to try to stay focused on what they're preaching, as opposed to, in my own head, preaching the sermon that I would be preaching if I had the passage that that other person is preaching. And and Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 is one of those verses that I've probably, in my head, preached multiple times and never actually preached to you. And so it was really difficult, even though everything that Rob was saying was fantastic, it was really difficult for me to disconnect my my own thoughts from my brain and and to just listen. And so... This was the starting point of, of this week's message. Rob, he, he kind of he, he stopped short of finishing this whole passage because he, I think he ran out of time and, and was being wise and not going too long and, and muddying things up by trying to rush through things, which was, for me, it was a good thing because that means that I can kind of pick up where he left off. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, the, the author, the speaker, he's, he's showing us all these things that, that are not the right things for us to do. And then he comes to this conclusion. He says in verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. I've said everything that I'm going to say, and this is it. He says, Fear God and keep his commandments. And Rob did a great job at explaining this. Fear God commandments. It's simple. It's basic. It's not complex. And then he says something else. He says something that I think is one of the more profound things stated in wisdom literature. He says, for this is the whole duty of man. If you ever want to study any Hebrew phrases, this is one that you should study. The ESV is what we know, what we call a literal translation, meaning in, in the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, it, you take you take a Hebrew word and you and you try to as as closely as possible give another another English word as a translation, and so every word has its translation, which which gives you the the, the literal words that the original text is in, but it maybe misses some of the the meaning of the text behind maybe some some figures of speech or some idioms, things of that nature. Like the NIV is a little bit better in kind of thought-for-thought translation. Both have their value and both have their their shortcomings. We have the ESV just because it's the Bible that I typically use. The translation is good, but but it lacks something. This is the whole duty of man. And I think what it lacks is is in how we understand the word duty. It seems from our perspective, from an English translation perspective, that, that what the author is saying is this is the only thing man is really supposed to do. Fear God and, and 
keep his commandments. This is what we're supposed to do. But that kind of misses it. It's not about our action. It's, it's about what we actually are. The whole essence of man, all of what man is, is to, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is what we were created to be. come at this in a maybe slightly different way. I like to build things. Some of you know this. Others who maybe don't. I like to build things. My brothers and my dad were, were kind of all, all kind of made this way. We probably got it from our dad. For Christmas, instead of buying each other gifts, we, we make something for each other. The, the, the men, right? We make and exchange things. I like to challenge myself to, to Build something in a media, in a medium that's not something I've done before. So my dad has a wood shop, so all my life we've we've built wood projects. This podium is one. I've built for my brother. I, I, I attempted to make a mug out of aluminum. I say attempted because it failed. And Missy, whenever I was making this and struggling to try to try to do better at it. She said, why don't you just do something that you know how to do? And I said, well, because I like the challenge of trying to create something and, and, and make something work that I didn't know how it worked before, right? I like to do that because, because the end goal is to do something different, do something fun, right? There's a realization when you're building something. There's this, there's this reality, right? That everything that you build has a purpose, we can look around the room. VBS is this week. And, and you, you'll notice that the, the church has been decorated. And these trees were built for the purpose of decorating the church. To give us this, this atmosphere, this feel that we're kind of in a jungle. The theme is rooted. And so this, it's great, right? There's a purpose to it. And you build something for the purpose of doing it. I built this podium for the purpose of preaching from it. Putting my Bible on the top. It's got places to put pens and different things. There's cubby holes in here to put other books and what the music and fulfills a purpose. Follow me a second. Just about took out the doors. Cut there. This is a chair, right? We all recognize what a chair is. And and the purpose of a chair is to sit on, right? And you're all thankful as you as you sit there and you listen to me preach that you have chairs because you don't have to then stand. Take some weight off your legs and sit down. Now, the purpose of these chairs is to not be too comfortable because I don't want you... But you sit in these chairs and it exactly performs the function that it was designed to do. It's doing everything that the Creator purposed it to do. You're sitting in it. There's comfort. There's alleviation of stress on your legs. Good job, chairs. Nobody wants to clap for the chairs? I bet you next week if there's no chairs in here, and then I bring the chairs in, you'll clap. Jordan, you want to sit here, Jordan? No, you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to do the challenge. Imagine Jordan is sitting in this chair since he's refusing. And I take the chair, and I want to move Jordan from this spot to that spot. 
and I get in there. What have I just done? I accomplished the task, right? Jordan, I wanted to move Jordan from this spot to this spot. Now, Jordan's not actually sitting there, but I've accomplished the task. But is that the purpose of the chair? Was that the easiest way for me to move Jordan from this spot to this spot? No. And if Jordan was sitting in this chair and you can hear it grinding on the ground and probably everybody in the room who knows we just did the floors might be going, stop dragging that on the floor. We recognize that the purpose of the chair is to sit in. It's not designed to be a mode of transportation. I could say it another way. Many of us who have, have children have, have taken the chairs at our dinner table and set them up draped draped a, a sheet or a blanket over it, and we've made a fort, and it, and it makes it functions properly, at least somewhat. But that's not its purpose. It does the thing, but it doesn't do it as well as other things could. I have a chair in my office that has wheels on it, right? It serves two purposes. I can sit in it, same thing as the chair, but I also can move around in it. Not, not a long distance. I don't know if I want to you know, travel to Florida on that chair, but I can get around in my office without having to get up and move around and scratch the floor. We recognize that the, the purpose of the chair is to be sad in. The whole duty of man whole duty of man. Everything it is to be human is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is the thing that we were created to do and in, in the way God created us, it is the, in fact the thing that we are able to do the most. Now, what preacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us is there's a whole host of other things that we can do. We can hoard wealth. That's not what we were created to do. And so it doesn't bring us joy and happiness like we expect it to. We can engage in physical intimacy. But when that becomes the primary purpose of my life, it falls short. It's a chair is being used as a means of transportation. Yes, it's getting the job done, but it's not the, not the purpose. Christians often talk about this un, indescribable reality of being a follower of God. Where there is something, there's something unexplainable that, that brings us peace and happiness and joy in the midst of situations that from an outsider's perspective don't bring peace, happiness, and joy. Sickness, death, turmoil, struggles where we recognize that there's, there's something we, we, when you set a person who is going through the same situation, who's a Christian next to a person who's going through that situation, who's not a Christian, you go, there's something, there's something different about these two, and it's because of the relationship that they have with God. 
And in that relationship, there is the reality of, of being exactly what God made them to be. It's not that the situation is, is good. It's that the God that they are in relationship with is good. So this is going through my head last week. and I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about today. I'm thinking about this, this setup. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole purpose of me. Fear God, keep his commandments. If you're curious, we find that we find that pattern from Genesis to Revelation. It's all over. It's fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole purpose. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, you can turn there in your Bibles. This is known as the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word. Translated as hear. If you look in the passage, it's the first word, hear, like listen, hear. Not hear as in place. This is a verse that is arguably the most important verse in the Old Testament. Passage in the Old Testament. It certainly is for the Jewish people. This for them is like uh, John 3.16 for a Christian. It's a passage that you, you have every one of your children memorize. And, and it kind of establishes for us the basic understanding of what your religion is really all about. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. We live in a culture that is predominantly monotheistic, meaning that if you believe that there is a God, you believe that there is only one. Judaism, Christianity, Islam all believe in that there is there's one singular God. So this does not ring as surprising to us as it does to the world that this is written into. In the ancient world, everybody and everything and every place had its own God. This is why in Genesis, the author of Genesis keeps saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just saying God. Because we had to distinguish this God is, is that family's God. And what's so profound about the book of, of Genesis is that God is, is showing through through moving Jacob around, that he's not just the God of one little location, but he's the God of everything, and he's the God of everyone, because he's the God who created everything and everyone. It's, it's profound. And the people of Israel, they recognize this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's one. Now, we're going to find, if you go through the rest of the Old Testament, that they don't quite grasp that like they should have, because they constantly are going and worshiping these other these other gods, these Baals and and the Asherah and all these other foreign gods that aren't really gods at all. They don't quite get it, but that's exactly what's being said here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's great stuff. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Heart for us is usually emotions. Talk about our hearts, and we're usually talking about love. For the ancient mind, the heart was your thinking. 
It's your reason. It's your logic. It's your rationale. Why? Because you get into a serious situation, you've got to think rationally about it. What happens to your heart? It starts pumping more. Well, my, oh, my, my brain is working harder. My thinking is working harder. So my heart is pumping more, right? Makes sense. This is where they thought, thought was. We know because of science that it's in our brains, but love God with all your heart. Love God with all your thinking, with all your rationale, with all your, with all your logic and your purpose. And love God with all your soul. That's more the emotional side of it. Your soul, though, is in the pit of your stomach. It's in your gut. You ever, you ever get into a situation and all of a sudden something just turns in your stomach and you go, oh, this doesn't feel right. That's what we're talking about. You start a new relationship with somebody. You got all those butterflies. Where do they feel like they are? Right? Oh, God, with everything that you are, every, every thought, every emotion, I love God with all the might physical strength. Love God with everything. Jesus is asked in the New Testament, one of the Pharisees comes up to him and says, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. He adds a little bit to it because the Greek is different than the Hebrew. and He's got to make sure that he gets everything. Love God with everything. Today, the world tells you that love is an emotion. It's not. At least not according to the Bible. Love is not an emotion. That's called lust most of the time. The emotion that you so often, or that our culture so often calls love, is just it's just erotic lust. Eventually, my my significant other doesn't doesn't arouse me anymore, and so I say, "Oh, I'm out of I've fallen out of love with him." How how ridiculous is that? Love is action. Love is a choice, right? And I say that, and and people kind of go. Oh, but that doesn't sound as nice. Doesn't it, though? If I have to love somebody, is that really all that special? Because of an emo- because of chemicals that are coursing through my bed? That is what you would rather have than somebody deciding, looking at you and saying, you know what, I have, I have found value in you. And therefore, I will act accordingly. God does not have to love you. In fact, everything about what you are kind of demands that he stops loving you, but he doesn't. He chooses to send his son to die on the cross so that he can have you in relationship with him. Isn't that better? I think it is. Love God with all that you are, he says. This is the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes. It's not accidental, by the way. I don't think that the author of Ecclesiastes was just accidentally writing this. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. That's the fear of the Lord. It's the realization of who God is. That's what fear of the Lord means. Sometimes we do it this injustice where, where we, we say fear of the Lord is it's not about it's not about being scared. It's about reverence. Which is absolutely true. It is about reverence. But it's also about fear, because we can't truly be reverent of God if we don't understand who God actually is. In the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, I know this is an old reference, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis has his God picture, his God figure is Aslan, who is a lion. Right? 
He doesn't do this accidentally. I believe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy's talking to, to one, of the, one of the creatures in, in Narnia, and, and she's like, oh, it's a lion? I'll be afraid of the lion if I ever meet him. And, and the other character's like, of course you will. After all, he's not a tame lion. Because there is a reality of the power and the might of God in our knowledge of Him. God breathed this whole thing into existence. We should have a reverence of God that borders on terror because He is so immense and magnificent. But the other beautiful picture that happens when we recognize this is the nearness that that untamed lion has with us. In The Magician's Nephew, which is, which is the last book that Lewis writes, but it's the first book in the, in the order, Aslan's creating. And the main character, Diggory, his mom is, is dying. And he knows this, this, this line, he's special. And as Aslan's creating, he's going around, he's breathing on things, things are coming into existence. He, he, he's, Diggory's like, can you, can you please heal my mom? It seems like Aslan's ignoring him. But pretty soon he turns around, he gets right up in his face, and, 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 and Lewis says, and there's a tear rolling down the, the untamed lion's face. He says, I get it. I know the hurts you, you have more than you do. But I have other things that I must do right now. This is the intimacy that we share with the, the almighty God of the universe. Is there anything else that we could give to him other than love with everything that we are? Other than fear. Awe and reverence. I don't think there is. But you might ask this question. How do I do that? In Ecclesiastes, he says it simply. Keep his commandments. That's how you fear the Lord. Keep his commandments. That's how you love God. In Deuteronomy, Moses, he's preaching this sermon. He's preaching a sermon in Deuteronomy. And the first thing that he talks about are the Ten Commandments. He gives the Ten Commandments. Which, by the way, are a microcosm of the whole law. All of the laws, there's 613 by the Jewish count in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, 613 laws, all of them boil down to the Ten Commandments. Most of, the, most of the laws in the Old Testament are quite simply explanations of what it would look like to enact one of the Ten Commandments in life. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Well, how does that act itself out in the, in the life that I live? There's explanations. There's a difference between, between I, I don't like this person, so I take his life, and war. It's fleshed out in the Old Testament, in the law. Keep his commandments. That's well, easier said than done. How do, I, how do I do this? How do I do it rightly? Anybody in this room ever been, ever been overwhelmed by what God calls us to do? I have. All the time. But I think the reason why is because, because at some level I want it to be complex. God has given me so much, clearly I should be giving him as much back as, I, as he's given to me. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. In, in verse 6, he, 
he goes on. He says, okay, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he says this, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. These words, I think, referring to the Ten Commandments. Shall be on your heart. Not, not emotions. Shall be on your mind, right? Let's, let's translate it into today. Shall, shall be in your thinking. Think and dwell on the Ten Commandments. Any of you who have children, have you ever taught your children the Ten Commandments? It's a hard thing to do, I think, especially if you have young kids. We've tried. We have to tell our kids the Ten Commandments, but they're not memorized yet. We think, oh, the Ten Commandments don't have value anymore because it's all about, it's all about grace. Yeah, it certainly is. But can we understand grace without the Ten Commandments? I don't think we can. After all, what, is the Bible just, what did the Bible just say to us? What did, what did, what did uh, excuse me, Moses just say? These words shall be on your heart. Think about them. Dwell on them. Anybody in this room thinking right now? I hope everybody in this room is thinking right now. To answer my own question, you are all thinking right now, even if you're not thinking about what I'm talking about. You're all thinking, right? Is it hard? Is it complex? Is it a, diff- is it a task that takes many, many steps? It's, it's, it's second nature. It's, it's, it's first nature, right? It's, it's how you function in life. And, and, and Moses says, think on the law. Well, how do I do that? It sounds nice. It sounds, it sounds good. How do I do that? Well, he tells us in verse 7. Teach them, diligently, teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. Talk about them. Complex yet? No. Does everybody in here know the complexities of what it means to covet? To the fullest extent of what it means to covet? Let me answer my own question again. No, you don't. Because because there's literally infinite situations where we have, to, we have to apply the idea of covetousness to that situation in its own unique form. It's humorous that the, the Israelites counted the law and said, oh, there's 613 laws. No, there's not. There's infinite. Because all of the laws can be applied infinitely to every situation of life. We cannot, in fact, know everything that there is to know. But what we can do is talk about that. Now, Moses here, he's trying, to, he's trying to tell us to teach our children. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is the primary task of a parent, to teach your children about God. So what do we do? Talk about it. Driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, you get mad. Turn around, apologize to your children for getting mad, unless it's justified. Ignore that last part. Talk about it. Your kids do something wrong. Don't just punish them. Talk about it. There should be discipline. The Bible tells us to spare the rod, spoil the child. There should be discipline in your home. But talk about it. God has talked about it. So why, as an earthly father and parent, should I not be talking about it with my children like he constantly is doing with me? 
Talk about when you're sitting at dinner. Talk about it when you're walking down the street, just going on a casual stroll. Talk about it when you're driving somewhere. Talk about it at all times. Talk about what God is doing in your life and what God has has commanded. It's not complex. And be... Okay, hear me. Sometimes be wrong. The most humbling thing as a parent, in my opinion, is whenever I'm, I'm, I'm really foolish and I have to go to my children and tell them how foolish I was. You know how much they're learning in those situations? Be willing to be wrong. You're not the heavenly father. Distinguish yourself between the two of you, between each other. Talk about it. In all situations. Verse 8. Shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Some Jewish... Uh, some Jewish uh, rabbis today, they'll take, they'll take this passage, actually, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and they have it written on a, on a, on a strand of, of fabric, and they'll literally wrap it around their arms. And, and as, they, as they teach, they'll have it on their arms. As a, as a, as a, as a literal tie-down to remind them of what they're tasking. I don't know if we should take this quite that literally, but... And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Imagine taping John 3.16 on a piece of paper right here. How long in the day before you think about it? Not very long, right? It's literally in front of your eyes. The last verse says, in verse 9, says, You shall, shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Some of us do this, right? We do this with you know, an important verse that, Something that has really spoken to us, we take it, we write it on a note card or a sticky note, and we put it in our, our mirror in the bathroom as we brush our teeth in the morning. We read it, we think about it, we dwell on it. It's exactly what he's saying. Why? Why is this so important? Why? Why is this so important? The book of Deuteronomy is, a, is, the, is the covenant paperwork, the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And it's predominantly Moses preaching. And it's right before the people of Israel enter into the land of Egypt, or the land of Canaan, excuse me. He's trying to remind them of something, remind them of something very important. I don't have it on in, in, in here, but it's in verse 10. It says, and when, when you, when, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all these so he, he explains what's about to take place he says, listen you're doing all of this so that what follows remains the presence of God will remain with you when you do these things now I think many of us think to ourselves that the only way the presence of God is going to remain with me is if I do some big fancy, elaborate thing. Each morning when I wake up, I have to have a Bible study where the earth shakes around me because I've, I've learned some new and profound truth. No. In fact, what the Bible teaches us is very, very simple to be in a relationship with God. 
give you three things that you can do. And every single person in this room can do it. Read your Bibles. Pray. And sing. A while back, I, I recommended a book called Family Worship by uh, Donald Whitney. The premise of the book, read your Bibles, pray, and sing. That's it. That's what it means to be in a relationship with the Lord your God. Is to simply be in a relationship with the Lord your God. Isn't that awesome? I mentioned this to my, my dad, who, who I, I credit with, with really almost all of my knowledge of Scripture. I was talking to him about, about this book because it just it, it rocked my home right? when I read it. And I, was, I was suggesting that, that everybody should, should do this. Everybody should have family worship. My dad said something that, that stuck with me. He said, he said, well, that's good for you to do. But what about all the rest of us? Implying that, that I could do it because I'm a pastor. And I went, Dad, we did it all my life. We had supper. And after supper, you know what we did? I bet you can guess. We read the Bible. And we prayed as a family. Donald Whitney, the author, he, he does this interview and he talks about when his daughter graduated high school and he got to give her the diploma. And, and as, as he's handed her the diploma, she leaned and gave him a hug and she said, Dad, the most, the most valuable thing that I have experienced in my entire life was the simple times of family worship. Let me give you another example. Take a year. Let's say, let's say for one year, you're going to spend 10 minutes a day with a person. 10 minutes a day. Over the course of a year, that's 60 hours. Now imagine you take 10 minutes a day with that person, and then you compare it to taking 60 hours in a row with somebody. Which relationship is better? I think we all, I think we all can agree that the one that lasted over a year. You know why? Because more stuff is happening over the course of a year than will happen in 60 hours. In two and a half days. But we get that, right? Yeah, you're going to learn stuff in that 60 hours, but you're not going to have a relationship that is founded upon something more than just two and a half days. Reading the Bible, praying, and singing songs will not, the majority of the time, end with earth-shattering revelations. Most of the time, you're going to finish your, your reading of the Bible and you're going to go, That's the relationship that God is calling us to. So as I, was, as I was thinking about this, and and wondering how to how to close this, because I, I think that this I think this is good. I think this is important. I think as 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 I look around this room, knowing that we have a lot of, of families in here. We, children, young children in particular. I hope that we that we decide as parents, as a church, that, that this is, is too important to not do. I hope that. I think that there will be no 
greater impact on this church than if families in this church start to read the Bible, pray with pray with each other, and sing together as family. There will be no bigger impact on the, on the lives of your children and the life of this church. I'm firmly convinced of this. But as I as I stand up here preaching, the purpose of my preaching is to is to bring us to Christ Jesus. I say in Old Testament, nothing in this passage is talking about Jesus. So I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about what what about this? Is, where's Jesus in this? And that struck me. He's everywhere. Right? Again, we go back to this assumption that there is some, some different relationship that I'm supposed to have with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be something different. But the profound truth of the gospel message is that Jesus came, Jesus, the the Son of God, God incarnate, came into this earth and lived as a man so that he could relate to us personally. We should have the same kind of relationship. We should long for the same kind of relationship with with the Lord Jesus, a simple, uncomplicated relationship. Because that's the profound truth of the Incarnation. Is that God did not say, you come to me and be complex with me, but I will come to you and be simple with you. And while that might not be, earth-shattering truth. In my mind, it's probably one of the most important. It's how we truly interact with God. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us not through complexity. not through through challenging manipulations of who we are, but through simple relationship. To listen to your word by, by reading the Bible. To question, to wrestle, and to be challenged as we speak back to you and hear your still small voice in prayer. And how we respond to you in praise and worship. How as we realize your your bigness, your sovereignty, your truth and justice, and how that 
humbles us and makes us very small. As we think and dwell on this, we feel your presence. Not at a distance, but hand in hand next to each other. Not because we have made it to some further plane of existence, but because you came to us. Lord, teach us to fear who you are. To love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And to simply follow you. It's only because of your son, Jesus, that this is the reality of our 